This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Cade Massey, listening this morning with my buddy and faculty colleague, Shane Jensen. Good morning, Shane. How are you doing, Cade? I'm well, sir. I'm well. How are you? Excellent. A little jet-lagged. Well, we're going to hear a little bit about that. Shane has been bouncing around the world, as Shane is wont to do, but he's with us this morning. Glad you guys are with us this morning. You can join us in a more concrete way if you'd like to. Give us a call, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We'll take your calls for the next two hours. We'll be here eight to ten Eastern. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. Audie Weiner is gonna join us later in the show, I believe. If we're lucky, gonna walk in about halfway through, top of the hour. Eric Bradlow is out and about doing Eric things. You guys can also send us an email, businessradio at com. Matty Dad standing by. He'll take those emails even during the show or over the course of the week if you're hearing a replay sometime when it's not 8 to 10 in the morning on Wednesday. Another great way to reach out to us is Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet occasionally about the world of sports analytics, and we are delighted to take your questions, suggestions, opinions, insults, over, under, ideas, whatever you got. Throw them to us at Twitter, where our handle's at WMoneyBall. We have guests this morning. We're excited this morning to have Mike Lombardi at the bottom of this hour. Mike's longtime NFL exec and new book author. Terrific Terrifically interesting follower of the world of football at the bottom of the hour. And then our friend Josh Hermsmeyer is joining us at the top of the next hour. Always fun to have Josh on the show talking football analytics. One of the reasons we're talking about football analytics so much is that the NFL draft is tomorrow, starts tomorrow anyway, round one, 2019 draft. It has become like the second most followed sporting event in North America. It's pretty amazing, right? After the Super Bowl. I mean, it's absurd. I was watching... I just saw to the side as I was eating dinner at a bar last night that there's a big elaborate mock draft. You know, mock drafts are typically what, Shane? Mock drafts are typically like a blogger saying, here's who I think the 32 first picks are going to be based on what I think he's going to do. No, and I feel – I mean, I I get – totally sucked into him as well and i completely forget every year that it's not going to go at all that way i mean people would be lucky if they hit like one or two players which is all the more reason why it should be something done by like basically you know online in a column but instead espn was doing a full they weren't just talking it through they were having people walk out on stage and make the oh like a real mock draft like like a dress rehearsal they had like espn's tampa bay correspondent walk out and give the tampa bay pick like they were doing. <laughs> well, that's this a little is, ridiculous. It's all a little ridiculous. Yeah. But it's good fun. You know, why is it, Shane? Why do you think people are so compelled? By the well, NFL? I mean, I think for, for I, I mean, I can understand why the draft inherently would be compelling. because why? Why? Well, because most of the teams in the NFL did not, you know, were not successful enough by their fan standards last season. Okay. And this is the main way in which teams improve, right? I mean, it's okay. it's. 
And and the fact that these are kind of players that, you know, as opposed to baseball, which is the other sport I follow the most closely, um, these are players that will walk onto the field next year or potentially could make an impact to their team like right away. So you've got teams that kind of who especially some of these teams that really did poorly last season, they could turn I mean, theoretically, turn it around in one year. Whether they do that or not, right. I mean you you have to wonder some of these teams that were bad last season, is it because of, you know, poor management in some part and that does not bode well for the draft. You know, like Correct. somebody like right. but I mean there's so many Kind of compelling storylines. I mean, because it's easy to make compelling storylines about the good teams. You know what the Patriots are going to do, what the you know what the Rams are going to do this off season. But this the draft is something that even is more about the bad teams, frankly. Mm-hmm. And well, you know you've got you've got sort of some long range compelling storylines for this year's draft. Mm-hmm. Every year's, draft. I think that 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 hope springs eternal yeah. thing. The future, the potential. There's potent, There's something especially compelling about potential and the uh, and the, just the extreme uncertainty of it mm-hmm. right i mean i think you know i i think it's sort of part of part of what makes it compelling almost is that you know everybody kind of knows that it's really an uncertain and and you know you even the a top 10 pick is not guaranteed to be great mm-hmm. you know I, I i feel like this is maybe a little bit more compelling than makes it a little bit more compelling than say like the top five in the nba where i think those you know those top picks in the nba or you know, NHL or perhaps are, are, there's a little bit less uncertainty about whether mm-hmm. or not they're going to have the impact that we think they're mm-hmm. going to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, I mean, it's it's a very compelling scenario. It'd be like, oh, my team needs their quarterback of the future. We've got there's four potential quarterbacks they could pick, and probably one out of those four is actually going to be a great quarterback in the future at the most. Well, speaking of that, do you have a position on this Kyler Murray situation? Well, I mean, you know, I've read. A, lot of it i I don't know if i have extra information to contribute beyond what everybody else is contributing i mean i think uh i think it's really interesting i I think the the dynamic is very interesting this year because you know arizona had one of the top quarterback picks in the draft last year right and now is lined up to pick again so i think one part of make that makes the kyler murley thing and it sounds like they are going to pick kyler murley that seems to be well, Mel Kuyper's now like 99% or even higher than 99%. Yeah. And, and we don't know how – I mean, he tends to have good information, but uh, there's so much – Yeah. There's so much – sub- sub- I mean, I, last year Baker Mayfield kind of came out of – I mean, he was not the consensus right. sort of first That's pick right. and ended up being it. So, I mean, they could surprise us again. But assuming they pick Kyler Murray, I think you've got this sort of secondary extra kind of compelling story of what, what they – you know. Do they find a different home for Rosen or whatever? You know? Well, let's talk about that. Would you move him straight away or would you play it out a bit? I don't know. It's hard to say because, you know, um, it's going to be a coaching challenge next. I, I mean, I, one could rationalize keeping them both around and trying to sort of see who wins out between them. But I, I, I think it would be a real coaching challenge to kind of give the, somehow give them the adequate – both give them the adequate playing time to kind of have that be a real competition like what do you alternate their starts or something like that next year or you know is that do you do you you do you do you do that in order to learn you don't necessarily need that order in order to learn but i mean the alternative would be i guess you start rosen again for another season um and you just have murray kind of on the sidelines um but then what you know if rosen has a good season do you trade him or if Rosen has a yeah I mean Rosen can either increase his draft value by having a good season but then you might want to actually keep well, him this, this is this is why I think it's kind of an interesting question because, yeah. so one there's uncertainty and so in a perfect world you'd keep them both 
you'd get lots of reps on both of them until you could decide who's got who's who you want to go yeah. with. So the, we don't live in that perfect world because they've only got so many practice snaps. They've got yeah. the politics to manage, and they may or may not be able to get away with that. The other issue is what's the right time to pull the trigger on a trade when you know again in a perfect world, which is kind of opposed to the other one, you want to do it when that player has maximum trade value, and that really means that right tail is still as densely populated yeah. as possible. People believe that guy can be a Super Bowl quarterback. Yeah. So you want it, you you don't want to burn that before you move him. Yeah. So you've got so Rosen's probably right now people still think that right tail might be there, right? Yeah, oh no, definitely. I mean so, I I I I've had you know, I read a report the other day that thought that if Rosen was in this year's draft, he would be the number one. Well this is what's really fascinating. You know? This is another fascinating thing about quarterbacks in these drafts is because we tend to get so focused on comparing them relative to other quarterbacks in the same draft yeah. class. Yeah. That we lose the absolute comparison across draft classes. And last year's class was thought to be very strong, one of the better ones in a while. One of the better ones really in the last thirty years probably. Even yeah. at least ex ante, that's what they thought. This year not so much. And so it's it's a wonderful question. Where would Murray go amongst all those quarterbacks? We can take this up with Hermsmeyer yeah. at the top of the hour because he's looked at some of this. And where would some of those guys go in this draft? So to hear, I had not heard that. It doesn't yeah. surprise me a great deal. Rosen, you know, Rosen was a golden child for years. He took a little bit, a little shine came off of him over the course of his time at UCLA. But the potential is still there anyway. And when you're trading a guy, when you're trading, when you're selling a guy, you want to sell potential, right? Yeah, you, you could right easily tail. argue. I mean, he obviously he had a kind of a mediocre season last year for a very bad team with one of the worst offensive lines. So you could easily rationalize away his, you know, kind of mediocre year last year and say this guy's still potential. I mean, you could, you know, this this is a chance for a team that's not got say a top ten picked in the draft to essentially get a top ten quarterback. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the scarcest, that's yeah. the most prized thing out there. So how will you how will you take in the draft? The first round is Friday is Thursday night, begins at eight o'clock Eastern. Each team has ten minutes to make a pick. There'll yeah. be lots of trades. Trades are one of the most fun things about it as well. That adds definitely a flavor. Friday night will be rounds two and three, and then into Saturday for the rest of the rounds. Will you do any of this as a like a live uh, event? Well, I mean, I, I'll be on the road, unfortunately, up to Boston. I'll be in a car, so I'll probably be on my phone telling telling my wife and, and her sister all about the various picks and <laughs> getting getting they, nothing in return. I mean, it's just going to be. I'm going to be. I might as well be talking to an empty room about it. Shane, but I'll be super can, excited. Shane, you can text me. You don't. Yeah, have, you don't yeah. have to text family members who aren't I interested. Will, I will, in fact, text you about that. So, so I want to pimp a little bit. Uh, you know that class. The classic thing you do is go watch ESPN, and that's going to be Kuiper or whoever. And then over the years, people started watching the NFL Channel, which is he's got one day on TV per year. You got to give him that. He'll get three and yeah. actually they play him pretty hard going going into the draft as well but and he's not the only one now but espn has you know kind of not surprisingly the the franchise on this thing but then the nfl channel has a great show but interestingly mike mayock their go-to nfl draft analyst is he's now, gonna be busy he's a little occupied he's yeah. he's making the calls or at least he's taking orders one of the, one of the two from john gruden over in oakland for their well picks. speaking of that i mean i i assume you saw the story about how they basically kicked all their scouts yeah, out of the out, yeah. out of the draft room yeah well, they, well, they what, sent them home not, yeah. not just out of the draft room like yeah you guys come back after the draft yeah now now it's probably a little bit overdone because most scouts in an organization don't actually live and work in the building they're in their areas around the country but there are some guys there and they generally gather 
this time of year. So, so I, I didn't look at it closely, but I, I understand this. You know, it seems like something about confidentiality. They mm-hmm. don't want people to know, but that's a heck of a signal to send. No, no, that's it. It's, I mean, you know, Oakland continued. I mean, Oakland, if, if nothing else, is all about compelling storylines. Yeah, those guys live to entertain. They'll give us those. I want to put a little quick plug in for an alternative way to watch this show. Last year I watched, I don't even, we're going to find out who's going to, who's going to broadcast this, but Mina Kimes is one of four or five that hosts a show that, that runs against ESPNs and NFLs. And I was bouncing back and forth last year and just settled in on theirs because it was, it was the right combination of like, okay, good analysis, but also not, you know, not aversive people. Yeah. (laughs) They're actually entertaining to watch. And so I would suggest track down whatever Mina is doing on her, on draft night, you're going to have a better show, both from an entertainment perspective without, Without giving up the the analytics, Mina of course did a show with us at MIT a couple of years ago. We're a big fan of her work, but she's fun to watch. And in her group, she's got a group of folks there. Dominic Foxworth, for example, is another one on that one. So that's that's the NFL draft. That is, um, you know, we're off season, but we'd still, and we'll probably go we, talk a lot of NFL over the next couple hours. Yeah, that's right. We have got some guests coming up. There are other things going on. In fact, there's some important things going on. We've had we had a lot of playoff series wrap up yeah. last night. So yeah. Shane, Shane, I watched some hockey last night. It did you? Did you I watch did. the Bruins Leafs? I did. Yeah, I watched some of it. Um, I, I got what a nightmare arena, Boston Gardens or whatever they call it now for is the for the Leafs. Yeah. I mean, that, so that, give us give us some of the history on that. Well, I so I mean, larger larger scale history. The Leafs are kind of one of these sort of fra- you know eminent franchises, that uh, but the they're Yankees. like the Cleveland Indians or something like that. Well, of, hold on, of, no, there is. It's like if if the Yankees stopped winning championships in the fifties or something. Yeah, right? yeah I mean, well, they're that big a name, but they, yeah, but they're now in a big drought. Yeah, that's right. I think it was nineteen sixty nine was the last time they've okay. won, and it's been since nineteen ninety three that any Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup. Well, they all left. There are no Canadian teams left. Well, up no, there. there's still like eight. Of them, I mean, now they're, they're still like a substantial Phoenix, Phoenix or whatever. Carolina I mean, it's true. Not all of them thing. are, you know, but but there are still a good seven, eight Canadian teams out there. Okay. And so the fact that there hasn't been a cha- championship in Canada to a Canadian team in say the last twenty five years or whatever is pretty pretty stunning. Um, hey, quick aside, did you? <laughs> this is ridiculous. But there was a hashtag going around last night: turn a book into Canadian. It's not, it's not <laughs> make make a make a book Canadian. <laughs> I saw a couple there pretty entertaining, but you would appreciate, and Maddie Datz would appreciate, that one of them was a story of icing and fire. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's so good. Not sports analytics. Well, no. But, All right. I mean, we did some Game of Thrones a couple weeks yeah, ago. I mean, it's icing. It's hockey. Um, We're talking hockey playoffs. All right. So Leafs. Yeah, so anyway, games, so the Leafs, game, Leafs, game seven. Leafs have a long kind of history of, of, of essentially failure in the playoffs. Um, but they have a particular history of failure in Boston. So Boston in 2013 was the site of this crazy um, game, another game seven, where basically Toronto was up by three goals and lost the game. Wow. Yeah. And okay. so, and then of course this so by year. By the way, we're going to come to another story like that across the country last night. But go on with yeah, the but, Bruins. But so, so, yeah. So essentially, you know, they, they, they were up 3 2. I watched the game. I think it was, uh, it must have been on. Friday or so, or maybe Saturday, uh, where they were playing in Toronto. That was the real game where they should have closed out Boston. They were unable to do that. Um, and then they had to go back to Boston for Game 7 and ended up losing 5-1 in Boston. So 5-1 makes it sound like it wasn't a good game. Two of those were empty net goals in the last minute and a half or two minutes or whatever it was. It was 2-1 coming out of the second period. 
and Boston scored an early goal in the yeah. third period to make it three one. So it was kind of a two goal. Yeah, no, period. I mean it was it was, a, it was a very competitive. I mean, yeah, I guess the the score at the end does not really suggest that it was all that competitive, but it was in fact a very compelling game. And yeah, no, I mean, uh, growing up in a different part of Canada, most of Canada is not a huge fan of Toronto, the, the 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 Maple Leafs in general. That's not the team that we kind of choose to cheer for in the rest of Canada, but. You kind of have to give them some sympathy for just, you know, having this, like, kind of long run. I mean, it would be kind of like what have Boston had against New York in baseball for most of their, you know, 20th century history before they finally turned it around. So there's hope in Toronto. It can always turn around. Well, the, it's disappointing because of the way they started the season, yeah. right? They won something like 22 of the first 28 games yeah. or some absurd thing. Really hot. Yeah. They, and one of their big offseason pickups was this uh, guy, Jonathan Tavares, who's one of the better players in hockey, and he came over from the Islanders. At least ostensibly, the argument was, oh, he'd have a better chance at a Stanley Cup in Toronto. But ironically, the Islanders are through to the second round, and the Maple Leafs are not. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. But they've also got one of the they, – they had the first-round pick a couple of years Austin ago. Matthews. I mean, the overall first pick, yeah. who's been a great player. And Fantastic. he had a good season. Yep. And, in fact, he had a good playoff. Yeah, and, I mean, Toronto's set up for the future. This is not going to be their last chance at, at, at the Stanley Cup with this kind of con- current configured players. So, I mean, if I was a Toronto fan right now, I would be probably pretty bummed out. But, I mean, there's, there's no reason not to be hopeful for the future. So, the other Game 7 last night – was I was up. I was, it was too insane. late. I didn't tell me about I, I it because my jet light kicked no, in. No, I only I only read about it. So the Sharks and Knights, the Golden yep. Knights, Las Vegas, who was the franchise, the the expansion team last yeah. year, who went all the way to the finals, just shocking. Right. They're in a, a first round playoff series with the San Jose Sharks, Game Seven. The night, by the way, Game Six, the Knights were up three to one or something, yeah. and the Sharks came back and tied it up and won to to, to force a Game Seven. Okay, so. This object, I read this, okay? Knights go up 3 nothing at some point. 3 nothing with 10 minutes left in the third period. The probability of winning is well over 99% yeah. at that point. And there's a face-off. A guy, the guy loses the face-off. The, the, the Knights guy loses the face-off. Cro- gives him a little cross-check, which apparently happens all the time. Not a high-sticking, but just yeah. a cross-check. But the guy takes like a bad spill. The guy he cross-checked takes a bad spill. Buss's head bleeds, almost bleeds out there. This is like the captain of the oh, Sharks. Oh, wow. The refs call a five-minute yep. major. A five-minute yep. major. And, everyone, and those don't cancel out once you start scoring. <laughs> yeah, so this is the problem. They scored three power, penalty, power play penalties. Power wow. play goals. On that penalty. To tie the game wow. and then one in overtime. Unbelievable. They call a five-minute major on what what sounds like it was like it, you know, it was a foul, but it was a minor. Two-minute minor, yeah. you get one goal out of that, basically, yeah, yeah. at best. And a five-minute major, three goals. The Sharks tie it up, win the game, win the series off of this foul. And so these guys are just, you know, beside themselves. Yeah. It's, I mean, that that is shocking. It is shocking. You're up 3 nothing yeah, no, with 10 I, minutes left that's, in the, that's incredible. Game 7. Yeah. Yeah, and let me just can I put a plug in for the uh, for hockey playoffs over basketball playoffs? We're talking about game sevens. We're talking about you know the favorite team not winning. Let's go over to the NBA, where uh, if you are, are you into sweeps? Are you into five game series where the favorite team wins every single so one of them? One second, one second before we do that, I want to say talking about the Brant Bruins yeah. in the first round playoffs. Probably my peak in person. My peak in-person uh, sports watching 
was when I lived in Buffalo. I lived in Buffalo for a couple of years yeah. um, before graduate school. That's where I learned to love hockey. Yeah. These buddies of mine had played you hockey. One of the greatest so goal turns of all time. Dominic Cassick. Yeah. And that was, that was the era of Alexander McGillney and Patty LaFontaine talking about fly, uh, Islander trades. Anyway, great era. And I was there. They hadn't, they hadn't, they hadn't, been, they hadn't advanced past the first round of the playoffs in a long time. They were in the first round against the Bruins. And they were up three games to nothing. Game was in the odd, the old Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. We were at the game and they go into overtime. And they had a player who wasn't known as a great offensive player named Brad May. And Brad May has a breakaway goal in overtime to sweep the Bruins and advance past the first round for the first time in a long time. And it was a phenomenal moment. And oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a 25-year-old no, no, kid arena or whatever. absolutely nuts. Arena goes nuts. At the time, Buffalo had a radio announcer named Rick Jenneret. And he was famously fun to listen to. He has this big kind of windy voice and a big enthusiastic player, as you would be, an mm-hmm. announcer for your team. And so driving to work the next day, I'm hearing the call he made. And now it's a famous call. If, yeah. you're, in, if you're in television, sports, everyone knows, or radio, everyone knows about this call. It's called the Mayday. Mayday, Mayday. He's going, <laughs> Mayday, Mayday. And it was so much fun. Maybe we'll have a chance to play that for folks coming out of a – coming out of the last half hour but that's playoff hockey yeah. even if you don't if you know if you don't watch that oh, much yeah. hockey it's, it's it's always exciting especially oh my God, give me a game seven game yeah. seven which is playoffs for hockey i mean the pace at which they play it was frantic that third period last night was just frantic yeah well uh, i mean they're throwing everything at them well this out you know we we can track players now in a way that we didn't used to i've always wanted to know can we see physiologically how much more they're exerting themselves in those moments? Because no, you, yeah, that is really different. no, that's right. It does. I mean, the the pace of it. I mean, at, at the at the minimum, one could sort of measure speed and stuff like that. But I think there is even more than that. I I, I would I look forward to this kind of data rich future where we can actually kind of tease out these yeah. sort of like you know players turning it on basically right, at the end. Right. Okay, so basketball over to the other side. So yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I was overly negative about this, but it's you know I kind of uh, any anything compelling. I, I mean, can, what, what, okay. what's I mean? Well, what's oh good? wow, all, all all the favorite teams won in like four or five games. Okay, but the, okay, I mean, except fine, for I guess that Denver series. Fine. I mean, it's really you, you can't have one with the without the other, yeah. right? Do you really want the top seeds knocked out of both sides in the NHL? Is that what you want? No, no. I mean, it's that's what true. You got. That if you're flipping coins, you're going to get that sometimes, and that's what we got. Yeah, this year. no, it's true. It's just I want actual uncertainty to the series. Yeah. I mean, why do we bother with the first round in, well, in the NBA? Well, there's one. There's one series. Cut in it which down to eight teams. There's one. Se- there's one series in the West that's competitive. So Denver. Yeah, Denver yeah. There's went literally up on one series in the playoffs that are competitive. Right. <laughs> well, some of the games were tied, even if the game, even if the series. Oh no, I heard. It. I, I yeah, I, I read about how the Jazz really played. You know, whatever <laughs> tough, and I looked at like, and I'm like, they're down like what three one or something like that. Yeah, yeah, played them tough. Yeah, that the Celtics. I mean, Pacers you know, I. I'm glad. I'm glad those players looked like they were trying hard in every game, but right. they clearly weren't as good of a team. You because, know, and you the, know. the Pistons started Game Four strong. <laughs> They, Man, they, they didn't. They didn't go without I'm a saying fight. Being a basketball writer right now must be kind of challenging. Okay, okay. Now, fine. So maybe you scrape away that first round, but now look what we have mm-hmm. in the East. Now look what we have in the East. We yep. have one through four. It's That's very right. interesting. Kind of anything can happen. Kind of, maybe. So, by the way, remind me. Was it Toronto or, or Milwaukee that was the top seed? So who's Milwaukee? Get, I think is the top Milwaukee, seed. So Milwaukee gets through. Toronto gets through. Sixers get through. Boston gets through. Yeah. So that, now we have Milwaukee. Boston, 
No, it's true. In Toronto, Philly. I mean, the nice thing about no series. upsets is you've got like a lot of stacked. good teams in we the second stacked, round. A stacked yeah. round too. Over in the West, what what's going on in the West? Well, so, let's see. Uh, the uh, the uh, in a shocking tournament, Golden State's through. Yeah, Golden State's through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Portland knocked off Oklahoma City last night, and it took a big shot at the end to get it done. Westbrook, there's a lot of grumbling about Westbrook at this stage. Uh, Denver not going without a fight against San Antonio. It goes up three two. Yeah. And then Houston. So I mean that 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 series is the closest thing to like yeah. an upset that we could potentially have. I mean, Eric was all worried about the Rockets having to play the Jazz, and we made an argument for you know. No, you I, know. I mean no, and, and I, I mean that, one game right going, going into the playoffs. There was a lot of buzz about oh my goodness, the Jazz could upset the Rockets. Of course, you know yeah. in the end it didn't happen. Well, Golden but. State's Golden State's not through apparently. Golden State we, we're, we're we're too quickly placing them in the second round because they'll get there, but they're is they it three one to go. They lose that first game against the Clippers. They did lose. They lost the second game against the Clippers at home, and Uh-oh. they came back a little mad after that. Did you see how the Sixers opened last night? It was like fourteen nothing, twenty to two, twenty six to three, something like that. It was it was entertainingly bad. <laughs> so the, the the interesting thing for us is whether they can do that against against the Raptors, who have been yeah. a top team for the last couple of years. And, then what's and I gonna... think they've got a good chance. I mean, I think, you know, if I, if I was a Sixers fan, I'll, I guess I, the, I'm the closest thing to a Sixers fan of any basketball team, you're, you're cheering hard for both, obviously, the Sixers in this next round, and you're also cheering hard for Milwaukee, because mm-hmm. I think Boston is not a good matchup for them. They, they seem to lose to Boston every time they well, play. Well, I mean, does Boston have it together now? They were looking shaky in the regular season, and then they go out and sweep the Pacers. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think Boston's, you know, Boston may be turning it on at the right time and but could does, be a potential How does that team. happen? They're, basically, their problem is they've got too much talent. They can't spread the minutes around yeah. enough. Their chemistry is down a little bit. So maybe is it the case that once the playoffs kick in, they get focused? Like, yeah. Okay, we got to set this stuff aside and win some games. Can you do that? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. So I saw an interesting stat about Kyrie Irving. Speaking of Celtics, yeah. so Kyrie has the highest playoff winning percentage among qualifiers, and that's always an arbitrary thing. But let's, they're going to make it fifty games as the qualification. So among guys who played fifty playoff games, which is a lot of games, by the way, right? Yeah. Um, his playoff winning percentage is seventy six point four percent. Would you have known that Kyrie Irving no, had that the would, number that, one? That kind of surprises me, actually. Well, you know. I guess that's what you get for playing with LeBron for a few years. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even you know, it's it's. I would have assumed somebody like Stephen Curry or whatever like that right. would would right. be would be higher, right? You know, right. So, by the way, he's higher than your boy Tom Brady. <laughs> Who's because as we've already illustrated, winning in the playoffs in basketball is so much harder yeah, than football. You so you got come quick, on, quick defense of your boy. So Brady, Brady. I mean, this is a crazy playoff set. Both thirty the and sheer, sheer number of playoff yeah. games and the record thirty and ten. Yeah. Thirty and ten. Thirty that, that playoff will, wins. I think Are that you will kidding never, me? That will never be broken. How can he have? Th- I can't even imagine he has thirty play. How, how can he? How can this be? Forty games. Yeah, I know. That's absurd. I guess if you, I guess if he you play basically twenty years plays and play three game, two, three playoff games or two no, or two, three two playoff years. games a year, I yeah. mean, a lot of them are fours. I yeah. suppose threes and fours. I mean, that's just insane. All right, before we before we lose the first half hour, this is exactly the place that baseball belongs right now. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> we got, we got, we got. I wouldn't mind us delaying talking NFL about draft. baseball until Boston's a little bit better. Well, they are getting better, right? Yeah. I mean, they're up from where they started. They were. Well, yes, that's certainly true. Um, I mean, I think the most kind of compelling storyline of, of of the start of the season, at least you know from my AL East focused ways, is that the Yankees have a 
got an insane number of people oh, on the this. injury list. It's like not... basically almost their entire starting lineup well, is it's, injured. It's not just that they have a lot of people yeah. on injured reserve. So but one, it's, it's early in the season. It's absurdly yeah. early. Guys are supposed to get hurt later in the year, not already. But the other is the quality of the players they have. Oh, yeah. There. So they have... They have more war, so wins over replacement, kind of this aggregate all-in statistic that you have in baseball that you can look at on a per-player basis. They have more war on injured reserve at one time than any other team in history. And it's not not close. So numbers, here, let me give you numbers 2, 3, 4, and 5 all-time. All right? 2, 3, 4, and 5 all-time. 21.1 war, 19, 18.6, 17.8. So the spread between 2 and 4 is you know, what is that? Three point three war. The Yankees clear all that by ten, by by eleven, by <laughs> almost like, twelve. Thirties, thirty-two point eight yeah. war on IR. I yeah, I mean, I, I basically Don't you just if you feel if, sorry if, if, for him, no, Shane? no. Don't you just bleed no, for the Yankees? Not really, not really. I mean, does anybody feel sorry? You know, when Gronk gets injured, and you know the Patriots are slightly worse than they were before. <laughs> That's yeah, a no. great analogy. No, That's a really, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I don't feel sorry for them at all, but it is pretty amazing. And, and I'm actually, cred to them, they're kind of winning through it. I mean, they actually have come back even more than Boston. I mean, they're only a couple games out of the lead in the AL East, despite having, you know, a bunch of, I mean, the type of people who are getting game-winning hits for them I've never even heard of. So that's that's it's pretty well, impressive. That's kind of fun. It's always more yeah. fun to play to pull for those guys when they when they, when they're not quite as stacked at the lineup. What? Agreed. How about the Bryce Harper experience? Is that going well for Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the Phillies are looking great. I, I think uh, you know. I mean, we kind of predicted that they would be up there, you know, for the division this year, and so far it's it's been basically you know they've been I mean, meeting we, expectations. We that, I saw I saw a game a couple weeks ago before I was in Japan. Um, was at the Phillies game and Harper hit. Just this monster home run! Oh my goodness! Good. And I mean, the entire stadium goes. I, I, I the other exciting thing is the entire stadium's full, and he just hits this bomb into like the third deck. It was unbelievable. Fun, fun. Yeah. All right, listen, man. Let's uh, let's wrap up quarter one. We've got guests coming up in the next two quarter hours. In the next two quarters, but to take you out, we talked we talked playoff hockey, and I mentioned this game. It's been a while now. It's been maybe 25 years or so Exciting. now. But this was this was another Bruins playoff game. First round. Playoff series clinching game. This one happened to be in Buffalo against the Sabres. This is 93, 94, something like that. And uh, the Sabres hadn't advanced in a long time. And this was an, an over, overtime in game four. Sabres to sweep the series. Their player, I think it might have been a defenseman, Brad May. Not a very exciting offensive player anyway. Brad May, 1993. This You're going to hear the radio call from Rick Jenneret. This is a famous call in sports. Rick Jenneret, Buffalo Sabres playoff announcer in overtime. Game four for the sweep in Buffalo's Memorial Auditorium. And he gets tripped up, gets it to May, and over the line. He's May going in on goal. He shoots. He Rolling into the second quarter, we have an interview, a guest. Delighted to have Michael Lombardi join us. Michael is an NFL insider for The Athletic. He's also the author of a new book, Gridiron Genius, a book that came out, I believe, in 2018. With the forward by Bill Belichick, because Mike Lombardi is not just a book author. He's a longtime NFL executive. He's worked beginning with Bill Walsh and ending with Bill Belichick with some of the best minds in NFL football and We're delighted to have Michael join us today. Michael, good morning to you. 
Good morning to you guys. Good. Thank you for having me. We're, deli- it. we're, we're glad you made time for us. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am in lovely Los Angeles, California. Where, what is Los Angeles to you? Is, where are you these days? Uh, I have a, I'm actually speaking at a coaches summit today mm-hmm. uh, out in Los Angeles. Uh, a lot of athletic directors from across the country are here uh, mm-hmm. talking about culture, really talking about Gridiron Genius, the book uh, about how to build a, an organization which starts with culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what I'm doing today. John Gordon, the great John Gordon spoke yesterday. I'm speaking today. So it's good. It's a good, good time. That, that, sounds, that sounds like fun. How will you take in the NFL draft for a long time? We'll get to your history, but just in a, in a nutshell, you started as a scout. You worked your way up through personnel all the way to the general manager position. Even when you're with the Pats, you're helping them prepare for the draft and free agency. So this is kind of what you've done. Most of your professional life is about assessing and acquiring talent. How will you take in the draft as we roll into it tomorrow? I'm going tonight, this afternoon, I'll end up in Las Vegas, and I'm going to do the draft for Vegas Stats and Information Network, which is uh-huh. uh, on Sirius 204, talk about the players. It's it's a great, you know, people think the gambling aspect is, is is uh, you know, how much do you want to bet, all that. To me, it's very analytical, and, and it's very methodical in terms of how people think and what they do. And I, and I think that it, over my career, you know, when I break down football games or talk about teams, it, it's in that vein. And so it fits my expertise pretty well. I don't bet. I mean, I'm not a better by any means. I've never placed a bet on a game. But I love the fact of provides – it's like stockbrokers. It's like stock <laughs> managers. You know, you provide the information, let people decide what they want to do. So are, are, are people betting on what teams are going to do in the NFL, or is this more interested in how this is going to affect – team so like for for futures for who's going to be good this year they might get pushed around by which players are acquired correct i think the overs uh, or the unders are going to be after this draft could be changed or could be played by smart people that understand what's going on in the game Mm -hmm. and then i think it's this whole you know is Dwayne haskins going to get picked in the top 10 picks Mm -hmm. you know there's these prop bets that 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 people tend to gravitate towards much like at the super bowl you know, people love those prop bets at the Super Bowl, so I think you're going to see some of that too. And and you know, who knows? I mean, all these mock drafts are absolutely worthless. I mean, <laughs> nobody really knows. I mean, it's really a and, and people love them. And I say they're worthless. I, I don't look very much at them in the NFL. I love them for the NBA because I'm a huge 76er fan, so I'm oh. there. But because I'm a fan and. I think they're great for fans, but people in the industry, they really don't matter. Right, right. That's so funny to hear you say this. As an industry guy, you got no time for them on the NFL. But as a fan, you think it's great on the on the NBA side. So, by the, by the way, we're talking to Mike Lombardi, and Mike is from Ocean City, New Jersey, just across the way, um, across across New Jersey from us, and then went to... And then went to um, Valley Forge Military Academy High School here in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So you've got some Philadelphia yeah, sure roots. Did, yeah, what, Steve, what? J.D. Salinger, Norman Schwarzkopf, all of us, we all went there. Yeah. Is that right? Jeez, that's that's yeah, J.D. Salinger. That's a, that's a pretty good pedigree. There. No, a, a lot of the catcher in the rye is based on his experience in at Valley Forge. Wow, that's interesting. So, what era? What seventy sixers era were you around and 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 learning to love them and. Well, it's been a love-hate relationship. I mean, I started as a young kid in Ocean City, and, and, you know, this is even before PRISM, if people can remember PRISM. In Philadelphia, we had the the 76ers were on this pay channel uh, before pay channels even came into play. It was called PRISM, and so they would be on 17 sometimes. I mean, I was a huge Big Five guy. When I was a kid growing up in in South Jersey, you know, Penn played LaSalle at the 630 game, 
And then, you know, Temple might play Villanova at the 930 game. Right. You got both those games on TV. They were great. So okay. I, I grew up watching them and went through the the bad teams, the Roy Rubin team, and I went through the, you know, the, the, the teams that got better and Gene Shue and then eventually got the Billy Cunningham and some of those great teams. So, and Howard Katz, the owner. And so I, I've kind of lived through that. But it's it's a it's a it's forever it's it's a painful existence because there's <laughs> there's always so much that you can tolerate you know so mike i i was walking through rittenhouse square yesterday morning and i and across a guy i saw him coming from about a half block away and he's wearing a t-shirt that says trust the process this is 20, yeah. 2019 <laughs> i and i regretted a block later i regretted not stopping him and let, letting him letting me take his picture but the, that jersey that shirt goes back to the sam hinky era and I'm sure right. Sam would be happy to know that there's still at least one guy walking around Philadelphia, and probably more, with T-shirts about trust the process. As an exec, yeah. as a professional sports exec, and a fan of the Sixers, what was your experience when Hinky was running the running the club? I think there's a couple things that you have to really study closely here. That's it's a, it's an interesting case study. I think what Sam did was did a wonderful job, and it's I talk about this in my presentations. There's four areas of leadership. And the first area is you have a plan. And the second area, you explain the plan. And Sam really did a great job of telling everybody about his plan, and he explained his plan. And you have people in Philadelphia that are completely diehard and completely believe the process is the reason why the team's good today. And to a degree, there's some of that. And I think what Sam did was great. The problem is I think you need – I think evaluation comes into play in the process. And so when you pick Michael Carter-Williams or you pick Nolan's Noel and you pass up C.J. McCollum and you pass up Giannis or you pass up – you know, really, any of those guys they passed up in that draft, you tend to worry. When you pick Jaleel Okafor in the third pick and pass up Prolingus, those things tend to worry you. But I think on a whole, it got him started. I think it could have ended quicker than it took five years. The fascinating thing about the NBA to me is the perception that you must have to be able to pick in the top five or you have no chance of ever winning. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. no when we watch players like Jimmy Butler get picked in the last pick of the first round, mm-hmm. we watch Shaquem up in Toronto, we watch some of these really talented players get picked in later rounds, and it comes back to it takes talent to evaluate talent. And I think that's the ultimate key. I'm not anti-process. I, I am having a plan, certainly, but I think you've got to evaluate correctly, and I don't think they did that to a degree. I think it kind of fell in their lap. Remember, what people don't people forget is the whole the process was to get Andrew Wiggins. Now, they got fortunate because of Embiid's back and Embiid's shoulder and Embiid's right. foot. When all those things played into it, and it was fortunate, and it took it took an injury to really help the process. Uh, that's interesting. Mike, this is uh, Shane Jensen. Your talk of sort of the kind of transparency and openness of the process kind of <clears throat> got me thinking, you know, back to football, of kind of the polar opposite of that, which is whatever's going on with the Oakland Raiders right now. Do you right. have kind of thoughts on what <laughs> oh, they're sort of doing and how, how they're kind of running things? I mean, they, they probably have an internal process, but obviously they it's, don't. it's... They don't. They don't. They don't. Because John Gruden doesn't have one. You know, here's what happens oftentimes. When Bill Belichick walked into the facility in Cleveland in 1991, he handed me a piece of paper. And he basically, on that piece of paper, lie the foundation of what today has become the Patriot way. I still have the paper. We're building it, and the first line was, we will build a big, fast, physical football team that can play in any type of weather. Mm. The Raiders don't have that document. Mm-hmm. The Raiders are like a guy who goes shopping and throws everything in their cart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no methodology to it. So when you ask that question, 
you think there's a plan. There is no plan. They're just their plan is to add talent to the team. That's their plan. Now, as you and I both know, as studying teams that win championship, it is never about a collection of talent. It is always about building a team. Mm-hmm. And John, you know, who trades away one of the best pass rushers in football because he says he can't afford to pay him, then turns around and pays a 31-year-old receiver, that tells you you don't have a plan. That tells you you value receivers more than defensive linemen. And if you do that, if you do that, then I think you're completely wrong. What fascinates me about John Gruden is simply this. He was raised in the Bill Walsh system. And if you study Bill Walsh as I have, and if you work for Bill Walsh as I have, the line he will tell you repeatedly, the wide receiver position is the only position on the team you don't fix until the rest of the team as well. No kidding. That's interesting. Especially coming from a guy who had the receiver that he that he had. Well, look, Dwight Clark's in the 10th round. We traded up to get Jerry Rice uh, only because the team was really good. We had Freddie Solomon won a Super Bowl in right. 1984, God rest his soul. Right. But the reality was, Bill was never motivated. Bill thought he could develop receivers. Yeah. See, there's a there's a problem in the NFL is you've got to figure out as a coach, I can develop that. That's a skill I can develop. I mean, let's just take right. A.K. Metcalf to the Yeah, tell us about him. This is real quick. Let's give the readers a background. This is a guy who blew up the combine because of some of his times and his physical condition. Like I don't know, four point whatever percent body fat. This guy's a you know he's coming out of Ole Miss. Ole Miss has had some really athletic, talented receivers. He's in that mold, but he didn't produce that much in college. And people worry about guys. I mean, the stat is something like you know if he didn't have forty catches, you don't you don't do anything in the NFL. Something like that. So now he's this big controversial pick. He's a he's a specimen. Some people are are skeptical. I'm really curious what your take is. I'm really skeptical. I, that line about catches, I think you must have production to be a receiver in pros. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't happen. You don't go from no catches. Now, Tamarius Thomas is an exception because of the offense he played it. But you don't go from no catches to dominate the NFL. Mm-hmm. There, it's an instinctive position. you got to learn how to play it. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is we fall in love. We say it every year before the combine. Don't, don't, don't take the cheese on the fast guy. But when you look <laughs> at Metcalf, he runs three routes. Okay. He runs three routes. He runs down the field. He runs one route that he runs in, and he runs a stop route. And if you run just three routes in the NFL and that's all your route tree, you're not going to play very much. Right. That's so interesting. Listen, man, you said this thing about Gruden, and you contrasted it with Belichick. And, you know, it's fun to take shots. I, mean, I think the, the Raiders are great to have in the NFL, and they're just, you know, they're just priceless because, they, you know, they've been this way for 30 years or whatever it's been, 40. But they're, you know, we can pick on these guys. But my sense is... If you had to say, Mike, if you had to say on the continuum of run an organization like Gruden's running it versus run an organization the way Belichick is running it, where's most of the NFL? My inclination is to say there are far more teams that are more like Gruden than they are Belichick. Right. There's no doubt. I mean, in 1984, when I was <coughs> excuse me, walking around the draft room, Bill Walsh grabbed my hand and said, look, we're only competing against eight. I don't know what you're worried about. Is that right? Wow. And, and that was in 1980. Yeah, that was 30, 35 years ago. I, I bet it's... I and bet... there were only 28 teams. Yeah. And there were only 28 teams. Right. We're only competing against eight. Today, there's only eight teams you're competing against. Because of that, because there's really no... What people don't understand about Bill Belichick, he's the general manager and the head coach, and he takes both jobs seriously. He does both jobs. That's yeah, remarkable. It's ridiculous. It really is. So so let's talk a little bit about where you come down on how these things should be done, and especially this 
the combination of analytics and culture is maybe the deepest thing I want to dive into. But but real quickly, let's give people a rundown of, of what you what what you've done. Your your credibility here is is ridiculous. You started out in college. You did a few years with UNLV, but then you jumped up. Bill Walsh's Forty Nine ers started as a scout. Worked as a scout with the Browns as well. This is where you run across Belichick for the first time. Become pro personnel director. Eventually bump over to the Eagles, spend time with the Raiders. Back to Cleveland as the general manager early in the Haslam era. And then your last post was with the Pats as assistant to the coaching staff where you're prepping them both for game day stuff but also personnel stuff. So that's a heck of a resume with some of the best guys in the business from Walsh to Belichick. And you've got a book now. And you're talking to lots of teams now about that experience and what you've learned from these guys. By the way, again, the book is Gridiron Genius. It's by Michael Lombardi. Forward is by Bill Belichick. It's a 2018 book. I'm interested in this in this relationship between culture and analytics. And you're 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 coming from the place on the culture side, but you've also worked with these guys who've always taken analytics seriously. Analytics is kind of the hot new thing, right? It's this frontier. How do you see these things reconciling inside these buildings, inside the NFL building? From 35,000 feet, the essence of the job that I've done over my career is data collection. And if you're in a data collection job, you need analytics. You need to study your data. You need to study your data. You need to find ways to make the data better. And people say, well, you're old school. No, I'm not against analytics. What I'm against is doctoral studies that take eight years to come up with a conclusion. (laughs) Hey, hey, getting a little close to home, Mike. A little (laughs) little close to home. Well, but for football guys, Kate, as you would know, I mean, I don't have eight years. I'm going to get fired. I I had one year in Cleveland and got fired. I traded Trent Richardson for a first-round pick and got fired. I love that trade. My God, that was a good moment. That was like, here we go. MLB comes to the NFL. Go Cleveland. So and got I never got a chance to make any of the picks. Yeah. So I, I think there's a there's a sense that there has to be some kind. Of, look, the the best things that I've done in my career have come from my mistakes. Well, we sat down in 1991 and put together the the grading system in Cleveland uh, that they use in New England today, that the University of Alabama uses, and some of the teams that are, the people that have been there. It was through a collection of mistakes. So uh, analytics to me is valuable. Like that, like that line that you said about forty catches, important. There's 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 trends and data points that you can really hang your hat on. Now they're not going to be perfect, mm-hmm. and I understand it and accept it. But the reality of it is, is we need them to be able to help us because why? Scouting is about elimination, not finding. Scouting is about elimination, not finding. You're saying you, you, you exclude have, you exclude guys that can't get it done, as opposed to identify the stars. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Okay. But and if you have a, and if you have a profile of what you want, and Walsh called this scouting inside out. If you have a profile of what you want, and then you adapt a grading system to build around that profile of the players that you want at certain positions, then you build a team accordingly. So when you go out to pregame warm up and you stand there and you watch the team and all the running backs look like the same type of players and all the offensive linemen look the same, you know you have a grading system, yeah, that's and that's where analytics helps. Right. Right. All right. Well, tell tell us t- from your perspective, and based on that kind of experience, you're you're open and interested, and you believe in analytics. And how can I mean? There are more and more analysts in the league all the time, right? I mean, the the, t- the NFL is finally moving in that direction and hiring folks to help in that way. But they aren't traditional football guys. How can that community be more useful to NFL executives? How can the analytics community add more value to NFL executives? Well, I, I think they've got to come up with theories. I think it can't be concrete. Look, everybody's worried about coming up with 
be, you know, they're going to be wrong. And I think if you tell people in your organization, we're going to make mistakes. Now we can't make too many of them, but we're going to embrace them. And we got to try to, we got to try some things out. Mm -hmm. If, if we think this is, this could be something, let's try it. Let's see if it works. Mm-hmm. and let's work our way through it, and let's try to utilize it. Let's not be afraid of the data. I mean, so many times coaches spend their offseason looking at new ideas and new plays, and they don't have enough guts to really run it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not that way. I think you need to take the data, utilize it, and then how do we do it better? The day after the draft, we need to sit in there with the analytical people and try to go through how we can improve. Mm-hmm. How, can we, how can we utilize all these mock drafts? And give us an idea who's going to be the top 100 players picked. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not asking you to tell me who's where everybody's going to the team, but tell me all these mock drafts. Who's the guy that's going to go? Where are the top 100 players? We did that in we did that in, in, in New England, and with Richard Miller, the analytical person who does a wonderful job up there. Richard Miller, he can pretty much tell you when he does his when he does his algorithms. I mean, they have a pretty good idea of, of who's the top 100. Now, there's going to be a couple misses, but mm-hmm. that's not. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. We understand it. Mm-hmm. There's more hits than misses. That's what we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think teams, the, the best teams, blend that kind of analytics use and the culture that you preach so much about and that is, has been a, a, big, a bigger role traditionally in football? And my sense is that, and this is across sports, my sense is that teams can get this wrong in either direction and the best teams somehow blend the two so some some very good nfl teams are all about culture and they kind of eschew analytics and then there are plenty of folks who take analytics a little too far and even if you talk to billy bean or daryl morey they'll say they've backed off a little bit the kind of the extreme position they've taken in the past the, and but then you go to someone like brad stevens with the celtics and he's very much culture and analytics it, do you agree with that philosophy and how and in your experience what's the best way to blend these two things I, I think when you went with Sam's way, I think Hakey's way was, I think, to eliminate culture, to eliminate the competitive fire, to just tear it down and to lose creates a losing culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard to overcome. There mm-hmm. has to be a balance. Mm-hmm. And so it starts with the leader. It starts with the guy who's building the program. And you've got to build the program. And this tanking, you can't – it's very difficult. Go back and read Hankey's letter. It's tanking never mentions the word chemistry within the locker room. We're building a, a team. We're not collecting talent. And in building that team, we have to have pieces that fit together. And utilizing analytics to help us get those pieces to fit together, I think is critically important. And mm-hmm. so it starts with the foundation of the leader. Now, now we talk culture, but culture is something that you just don't lay down with the carpet and then walk away five years later and think it's still there. It's every single day you've got to work on the culture. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring a player in that doesn't fit the culture, you now are tearing down the culture. Mike, can you give us an example of the way Bill Belichick reaffirms culture on a daily basis? Well, he talks to the team every day at 8 o'clock to go over the daily events, to go over what's happened. He talks to them about what, what the media, uh, how to handle media. He coaches them in every single area of their life. He talks about the history of the team in the in the team locker room in the team meeting a uh, dining room is pictures of former great patriot players and he talks to the play, do you know, they ask the, the young players you know who that guy is mm-hmm. he teaches them the history because mm-hmm. bill walsh used to say marines fight for marines when you become part of a culture part of a history that's important for you you fight harder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he's constantly working on that and no one comes into the organization that he doesn't believe can fit within the culture. And if they do, if he does let someone in and makes a mistake, he admits it and sends them on his way. Hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's so critical. And he spends more time on bringing a player in 
than he does because once he brings the player in, he doesn't really want to. He wants to cover his his trail. He wants to make sure he's covered the need that he has on his football team. So that's how he does every mm-hmm. single day. He's working on culture. Mm-hmm. Go back and read what he said about Rob Gronkowski when Rob Gronkowski announced his retirement. His first line in there, it says, Rob was a great, great teammate. That's right. culture. When you right. talk to the team, That's interesting. when you talk to the media, when you talk to when they have a when you have a press conference, Al Davis used to say all the time, you're not talking to the media. You're talking to the team. Yeah, that's interesting. You're talking to the coaches, and you're talking to the organization. Yeah, that's great. Listen, Mike, we're, we have to let you go. Um, we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning, especially coming in from the West Coast. Wish you the best with the conference you have going on out there today and then the NFL draft stuff over the next few days. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Michael Lombardi, NFL insider for The Athletic, longtime front office exec coming up through the scouting and personnel side of a number of teams, the 49ers, Browns, Eagles, Raiders, and finally with the Pats. He's the author of a new book called Gridiron Genius, a 2018 book with a forward by Bill Belichick. He's also the host of a podcast called the gm shuffle the gm shuffle and you can follow mike on twitter at ml or at m lombardi nfl at m lombardi nfl that's the first half of our show we still have a second half to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen, buddy and faculty colleague. Just walked in the door, Audie Weiner, our third buddy and faculty colleague. Good morning, Odd. Good morning. How are you? Good to be back in the studio. Glad to have you. Thanks for squeezing us in. Appreciate it. Drove down from Boston. Not in the morning. Split the trip. Split the trip? Yeah. All right. Well, well done. Thanks for being in here. We are just off the phone with Michael Lombardi, longtime front office exec in the NFL, talking football with him. In the next half hour, delighted to welcome Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh Hermsmeyer, also a football analyst, expert, and a What's re- repeat football. guest. Football. Amazing. Yes. I walk out of the studio for an hour and bang. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you, you know there's this kind of big event tomorrow. Yeah, I know. It's a big event. Well, you know, Adi, we'll give baseball its time. You know, we get, only we only, we only have four more months to talk about yeah, it. Exactly, my God. All right, listen, we're gonna have Josh here in a second. You guys want to join us? One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or give us an email, businessradio at sirusxm dot com. Or hit us up on Twitter. Our Twitter account at wmoneyball. You can send us over-under suggestions, complaints, ideas, observations, whatever you got. At W Moneyball is a great way to reach us on Twitter. In the next half hour, Josh Hermsmeyer is a writer for 538. He's founder of Airyards, airyards.com. He works on all things football analytics. I like to call him the Patrick Mahomes of 2018 football writing. He was discovered by 538 this year and has a great platform and doing great work up there. So Josh has been with us before, and we're always happy to talk to him. Josh, good morning to you. Good morning, Cade. It's great to be back on. Unbelievable uh, being on here four times. That's uh, no no one would have put that uh, that 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 line anywhere near that. So I'm I'm glad to make the over. Well, you're right. The over on the number of appearances by Josh. Hey, we got we might be here for a while. You might you know you might have a few more in your future. Are you calling from Idaho this early in the morning? I am. I am. Yeah, and I, I actually uh, I put in some time last night. We uh, were running an article on the on the draft. 
um, kind of analyzing some something that's near and dear to your heart, and you guys talk about quite a bit, kind of the crowdsourcing and oh, yeah. drafts, and oh, good. how well they how well they predict uh, how well they predict the actual draft. So anyway, yeah, I know. Well, well, you've 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 come from the agricultural world in a way. You were in the wine business for a while. Those guys are known for getting up early. I guess I shouldn't feel too bad about your getting up. This oh no, crazy. No, no, not at all. In fact, uh, yeah, when we would get up and, and, you know, spray the sulfur on the grapes early in the morning, uh, boy, you'd have to get well, well up, uh, up well before the sun and Good. get in your tractor and spray the rows. So yeah, no big deal. All right. Well, listen, let's hear a little bit about what you're thinking as we roll into the, into the draft that you wrote this piece. Um, you wrote this piece just before the combine. That was attention getting the headline writers at five thirty eight. Did you know favors? <laughs> Other than the click, they're good for clicks, I'm sure. They said, the headline's your article, this is end of February, the NFL is drafting quarterbacks all wrong. Oh, let's listen to Josh tell us what the NFL is doing about drafting quarterbacks all wrong. So what, what, did you, what did you find, and to what extent is that headline true? And this, you know, we can talk about any position with the NFL draft, but of course... Quarterback's going to obviously stand out. Yeah. So yeah, t- I mean, tell us a little bit about what you found in that article. It's the one, if you get it right, obviously, as you've said many times, that uh, it's the difference maker. It's the most important position in sports and all those things. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it's pretty funny. The, the, the headline, um, some of the ones they were kicking around were actually even a little more acerbic. And uh, so I'm glad that they we kind of toned it down and went with this one. But um, <laughs> the, the, the general the general gist of the article is it isn't that uh, the NFL evaluators have been, have been terrible. It's just that um, the success rate hasn't been there. And why might that be? And and uh you know and then of course the humility we should have in, in kind of trying to project these humans from the college to the pros and right but I, the the one thing i did look at that i i think was novel was this uh, at least in this context was this idea of trying to adjust for uh the league environment the college conference environment um and and adjust completion percentage which is uh people have known for a long time that it's the trade or the measurable uh, of production that that translates the best from college to the pros and so could we improve on that, and, and perhaps could that help us uh, do a better job of, of differentiating between uh, different tiers of quality right. at the quarterback position? Right. So how did you marry that with some of your traditional analyses? So you've, you kind of cut your teeth in football analytics, at least publicly, with the air yards concept and the depth of target. And you ran some really cool analyses in last year's draft. So last year's draft was known as a, a thought of as a very strong quarterback draft. And I remember seeing analyses that you ran that were. I, I was very slow to come to Mayfield as the darling of the. But he really analysts. stood out. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. And Josh's analysis, you look at his his completion percentage as a function of basically how deep a ball he was throwing, and you you got a plot there that showed this is the average of NFL quarterbacks, and you showed their college stats, and the college stats are going to look good compared to you know average NFL, but. One of the nice little summaries, as an aside, one of the nice little summaries that somebody came up with last year. Do you remember who this was last year, Josh? Who said the best you'll ever see a college a college player play in the pro is his college level performance, and so maybe that's a Bill Connolly thing. But it is. So you you throw these stats up there. It says let's look at these five guys, these five first round prospects on this curve that shows how well they're completing their ball. This completion percentage being a really important stat. How well they're completing it at different depths of target. The idea being, look, these little, you know, bubble screens or whatever anybody can throw. It's the guy who can complete the deeper balls. I had never, you know, I, you know here's how much of a doofus I am. I've watched Baker Mayfield play a lot of football painfully over the years. 
I didn't realize he was as good in this way as he looks. Your numbers, he jumped off the chart. It was really illuminating. Yeah, but I mean, compared to Sam Darnold. And it's who's such like, a, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's a very kind of simple graphic, but it, yeah, it was, it was really uh, compelling. Okay, so that's my kind of two-cent summary of some of your analyses. Is this the kind of thing you brought to this article? Have you elaborated the concept since then? No, I think, uh, well, I did add one tweak, which was that, you know, there is a difference between conferences, the SEC versus the Pac-12 and, uh, and, and the Big Ten. And, and, and so kind of adjusting the completion percentage by those, by conference, um, allows you to get a, a slightly better read. So, Josh, real, real quickly, that's, that's a cutting it pretty fine. That's interesting. So people are forever wanting to distinguish Power Five conferences from Group of Five. But to go in and say, actually, within the Power Five, there are differences in that expected completion percentage curve. Um, that's that's intriguing. Yeah, and it was significant too. So it wasn't just uh, you know just adjusting for adjusting's mm-hmm. sake. Like I mentioned, the the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, they just allow more completions at every depth. Mm-hmm. And uh, for instance, the Big Ten, or excuse me, the Big Twelve and the Pac twelve allow more than the Big Ten. Um, and and so if if you, if you you know if you adjust to the conference for those particular passers, you know some some guys in the Pac ten are going to get dinged. And some guys in the Big Ten are going to get a slight lift, um, but it did help. It did help with the model. It did help with predict predictivity and uh, into the pros and, and making this this one metric translate um, better. And and I looked at it from two ways. I looked at does is the is the metric itself stable? Does it translate? So in other words, does it predict itself from college to the pros? But then does it also correlate with something in the pro game that leads to winning? And and of course, yards per target has, has long been known to uh, to correlate well with winning and this this new measure, this completion percentage over expected kind of uh, point estimate, um, actually does a better job of correlating with NFL yards per target than uh, than anything else we that I was able to find at least, in, including ESPN's QBR and wow. and uh, and a host of other metrics. So that was what was uh, exciting about the uh, the study. John, this is audio. I've got a question. Josh. For, Josh. Josh. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I just walked in the studio after a long drive, um, <laughs> and I missed the first hour where I'm sure NFL was talked about in, uh, for a long time, I guess, guys, right? Um, so my question is, uh, you keep talking about the model predicting. So what you're predicting performance in the NFL, but one of the, the difficulties in doing that is that so, many, so few people actually play in the NFL, and mm-hmm. there's a bunch that accumulate a lot of a lot of time, and those are generally the best ones, or, or and that probably is predicted by their college performance, whether they're going to play at all. So how do you kind of get around this confounding aspect of so many players just going to the pros and really doing anything, not, and really not playing, and that's probably highly predicted by their college performance? Absolutely. I, I think probably the biggest drawbacks or the biggest caveats to the entire study was, that, first of all, I only looked at players who... Uh, accumulated at least a hundred passing attempts in the NFL. So you already selected for this this minuscule sample of players, and then on top of that, I only you only look at the players typically um, the, the quarterbacks that are drafted were invited to the combine. So there's this winnowing process that's done via scouting right. from the very beginning. So this isn't to say that analytics have somehow replaced scouting at all. All they've done is to say that, you know, given this list of players that were both good enough to make it to the combine and then also uh, eventually went to the NFL and got at least a chance to throw a few balls, you know, can we, and so there's another way of putting it is these are the top prospects. So among the top prospects coming out of, uh, of college, is there a way for us to kind of differentiate between them? in a reliable way that we can quantify. And uh, and I use really, actually, really simple methods. Like, it's just a simple logistic regression. And it, it, it did a fairly good job. The uh, 
AUC was around 72, so 0.72. And that, that's that's a decent job. You wait, know, wait, you're predicting well, what's the, the – in logistic regression, it's a binary variable. So what are you predicting? Correct. The, the, it was whether or not the, uh, the, the success variable was 7.2 yards per target or better. So basically, are you an average NFL quarterback in the at least 100 passing attempts you took? And what's the base the frequency? Just to give me, I don't know. If, well, how, is that good? Is that an average mark for a professional? It, it sounds about, like it's average. You pick the average. You pick it's the average. It's precisely average. Okay. Yeah, it's precisely average. So, 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 let's, so let's, you're trying. Go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, no, you're, you're just trying to delineate between. And is, is it a perfect discriminator of good and bad quarterbacks? No, it's not. Um, but I think it gets pretty close. And, and in fact, you know, it gives these uh, – it, it gave a good reading for, for Russell Wilson and a really bad reading for, for someone like Blake Bortles and a bunch of other failures. So it, it, it did pretty well. So let's stay with that for just a second at a high level when you say pretty well. You said early on when you were talking about this piece, you said, you know, one of the things you learned from it is that we need to be humble – about how hard this is, how well we can actually predict a college quarterback's performance in the NFL. When, so can you give us some, can you characterize that in some sense? So on the one hand, you want to say the model's doing pretty well, and, and, we, and we buy that. But on the other hand, we want to say it's just hard for a model to do anything in this space. Yeah, absolutely true. I, I think, you know, another, another problem with it is, is what Adi uh, kind of pointed out is the sample size problem. We, I, I did have data going back to 2011. That's what got me excited, though, ESPN has this data going back for college further than anyone else. And so what that kind of felt like a treasure trove. And, and so there were a few years to look at. And uh, in the end, I believe we had, uh, uh, looking through the article here, I believe we had close to 100 QBs. Yeah, so, so you, you would, you'd be entertained by Adi's reaction. This Adi's a baseball guy, and they do data back to, like, 1890. 1869, you know? come not, on. He's not impressed. <laughs> it stays relevant and fresh the entire time through. <laughs> Your 2011 yeah, no. treasure trove is not, is not really meeting Adi's standards. for. Although it's interesting because in, uh, in he, college is actually very interesting for football. For, for baseball, it's just not. It doesn't, yeah. No one really bothers right. with it. So. Right. Listen, I, I want to ask you a question about the 2019 draft. And one of the things that's fun about – I mean, there's a zillion things that's fun about the draft, right? But one of the things we tend to do is we look at the quarterback draft class – one at a time. And we talk about, I mean, we, we broadly say things like, you know, this is not as deep as last year or whatever. But in the end, most of the conversation is going to be, you know, Kyler Murray versus Haskins or whatever within his same draft class. Same as last year. It's like those five guys are kind of against each other. We don't do enough comparing, like, where would Josh Rosen be in the 2019 draft? And where would Kyler Murray be in the 2018 draft? That kind of a cross Much more Yeah, comparison. I think I saw, I, I saw some anecdotal report that uh, the, the, so, some scouts said that Josh Rosen would be number one in this draft So this if, should he, be, if, if he was in this draft. What do you think about that? Well, this should be one of the benefits of having a model, right? Because yeah. once you've got a model, then you can just apply it. You can take a look. We can look at all the guys since 2011, and we can kind of plot them out mm-hmm. here, and we can do something. We can get a better sense of their absolute expectations instead of just the relative expectations versus others in the class. Yeah, I, I, uh, I did run Rosen, and he didn't show too well. And, and one of the big reasons was since we have data since 2011, uh, there hasn't been a quarterback with a completion percentage under expected that's gone on to be at least average in the NFL. And Rosen wow. was a point, a point under expected. So wow. the, out, the outlook for him, according to the model, is, is not, not good. I think they gave him like a 20% chance of being – Wow, an average quarterback or better. You, how so, hard is it for these guys to overcome? Maybe, maybe it's the other way around. How how much do their reputations as like elite eleven quarterbacks when they're prep prep players stay with them? 
because Rosen was like the chosen one. This was the play on names, the chosen one from age 17. And is it the case that maybe that still lingers in here? Some? I was going to toss out I, just before I, I walked in, I tried to look up some data on Kyler Murray and uh, Haskins. They were both four four star recruits. That is not in the top 25, 30 of all high school players. So they were but, not but, chosen but the way you're describing Rosen. But I mean that four star is really still good because yeah. there's only three hundred and seventy five of them, so it's not like it's so But f- there's only twenty five to thirty five stars, stars right. each but, year. But it's hard to be a chosen one like yeah. Rosen if you're yeah. not in the top. That's, that's fair. So. That's fair. All right. Josh, what do you got? Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know how long those kind of things linger, but I do know that Bill Connolly, I'm sure you've talked to him before, and, and some other folks have looked at how, how predictive that stuff is of college success. Like, in other words, are we are scouts reliably able to identify the very best athletes and football players at that level and do the stars kind of denote that kind of success? And, yep. and generally they do. And yep. broadly speaking, it, it, they do a really good job. It's that winnowing process from college to the pros where things get tricky. Well, I, and, uh, I would hypothesize that the that the college rating, among the top players anyway, has a positive effect into the draft, but not into NFL playing. I think there's probably this reputational thing. The guys that were supposed to be great coming out of high school, they have a hard time letting go of that concept. At least it, it feels yeah. a little bit that way. I'll tell you what Kyler Murray did as a high schooler. It wasn't a ratings thing. He won three straight state championships in high school football in the highest classification as a 6A player in Texas football. And maybe that counts for something. Maybe if you can play, you can lead your team to that level. Maybe that counts for something. I'm curious about Murray. Josh, you talked about adjustments. And, of course, as an analyst, you're forever trying to you know make the adjustments that you can make and not worry about the ones you can't. The Murray played behind one of the best offensive lines we've seen in college in a long time. There's some speculation that they'll have four guys drafted off of that five-man line. Also, he played for, hands down, consensus top offensive coordinator in college football right now. So given those, given those, how do we how do we think about his production in college? I mean, do you do you do you temper it at all? I think you temper it slightly, but the, the, what kind of argues against that, at least from my perspective, and again, it's not complete apples to apples, but uh, uh, PFF Pro Football Focus and Eric Eager has done a lot of work trying to tease out how much the line is responsible for, say, the success of the run game or the success of the pass game. Yep. Again, you know, I just want to. This is at the NFL level. Turns out the line has just got a very small effect on success in the pass game. Really, um, much, 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 much bigger effect on the run game. And I mean that kind of intuitively makes sense. But yeah, no, the quarterback. Like I think people have found the quarterbacks responsible for sack rate to a large degree. Um, so a lot of the things that you would uh, that you would kind of attribute to line success, like you have a great line and they're doing great blocking, and you have a quarterback that's holding on to the ball too long, blocking is wasted. If you have an average line and you're a good play caller and lots of deception, you know, you're doing them some huge favors. You have a, a mobile quarterback who can move the pocket. All those things kind of, you know, they, they help that line become much, much better. Now, yep. uh, and then and then you have the problem that everything's interconnected. So I, I guess <laughs> well, just at the end that. of the day, just that. I, I mean, this yeah. might argue actually for some of your kind of metrics like completion percentage or some of these things that are potentially like you could look for kind of metrics coming out of college that are relatively uncorrelated with line play basically right like i mean you've been kind of arguing for things like completion percentage 
uh, because it's predictive of NFL success, but it could also be something that is less, less correlated. correlated with lo- yeah, with with kind of the teammates around them, and that makes it kind of extra valuable beyond its predictive power. Oh, that's interesting. And that's a good point. Uh, it would be interesting to see, and I, I hope that that uh, that PFF, you know, that PFF college data, we really need to get our hands on it because teasing. I know, I know, the line is important in college to a much larger extent um, than it is in in the pros. I mean, for instance, running actually correlates better with winning in, in the college than it does in the pros. Uh, interesting. I'm sure. I'm sure Cade knows. I mean, gosh, you, you make your you make your models every year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so I would I would expect the line to be important. I just. I'm not entirely certain for for the metrics I was looking at, at least, that uh, they had a huge effect on uh, on overall performance. Yep. We're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a writer at 538. He's also founder of airyards.com. He's a terrific, unusually good follow on Twitter. At Frisco Josh is his handle, at Frisco Josh. I I jumped on Twitter after being away for a couple days over the weekend. And you're one of the first I saw, and it's all this great NFL draft stuff. I'm like, oh, dang, I'm behind. I'm behind on the draft, and I can catch up real quickly just by looking at Frisco Josh's Twitter feed. Listen, you said you worked late into the night on a new piece. Why don't you give us a little preview? Give us a new piece piece preview of something coming out on 538 on the mock drafts. What are you guys doing with mock drafts? We're not actually doing much, but I ran into a gentleman, a guy named uh, Benjamin Robinson, and what he's been doing is pretty incredible. Ah, He's collected... He's collected 2,000 mock drafts going back from last June to, to, to yesterday, basically. And he's characterized them in terms of if it's an expert, if it's the media, if it's just a fan mock. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and so, so we have a date variable. We have the pick itself. Um, we have this characterization, this bucket, whether it's one of those three um, sources. And, and so what we're able to do is look at the change over time of uh, a draft pick. Um, and, and he actually did, uh, you know, the value of the mocked value of their pick. And then also kind of, he back tested it and he found that just these kind of naive mocks that kind of amplify and echo one another, they do a fairly reasonable job of predicting the first round. And, uh, he found in 2018, he, uh, did this, a similar, similar thing and he, uh, had 500 mocks. And uh, I believe it explained 60% of variance or, or something around that. He looked at median and weighted average and all these different things. And so there's, it, it does a reasonable job of telling us who's likely to be picked in the first round, uh, a, less, a less reasonable job about actually getting the team uh, player match correct and the absolute value of the pick correct. But it does give us a, a general sense of, you know, who's going in that first round. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I use that to kind of look at the change over time for some of these top uh, top prospects, guys like uh, A.J. Brown and uh, D.K. Metcalf. We're on the same team, Ole Miss. One went up, the other went down. Brown's stock has dropped over time, and, and D.K. Metcalf has risen and fallen, but, but is generally higher than Brown's now, even though A.J. Brown had you know better better production metrics and for all, for all intents and purposes was a better prospect to start with. So kind of understanding that dynamic, I looked at a few other uh, defensive ends and uh, – as well as uh, the two the two tight ends out of Iowa, which are pretty interesting. So, so what other trends did you see on what's driving? So, one of the interesting things that's going on here is you're you're not talking about ultimate performance. You're just talking about when the guy is going to be taken. So, yeah. we do you know you follow the draft, especially you know after this after you clear the Super Bowl, you roll into the combine, all the data start coming in, people start talking about it, and it is interesting to watch. Like prospects float up, prospects float down. Are there any patterns that you see? We've talked about it on the show over the last couple of months 
quarterbacks just tend to float up the draft. It's just it's every year it seems. I could be wrong, but if I had to, if I had to say from a distance, it seems to me like the average first round, first two round quarterback expected draft slot drifts up between January and April. Just they're st- like inevitably, no matter where we start, the stock of NFL quarterbacks goes up over time. I'm looking at all the QBs, and it looks like only one has uh, a negative ADP differential over the period from last July to date. So I, I would say you're correct. Uh, you're talking about it, draft mock draft. Yeah, is, yeah. is, is for, draft, yeah. yeah, basically expectations, expected yeah. draft yeah. order. Because one of the things, yeah, exactly. one of the things I think you would say, and, and Benjamin Robinson would say, probably from his data, is that these mocks do a, you know a reasonable job of forecasting the order of these guys yeah they do they do a reasonable job the, the biggest riser it appears looking at the data was kyle Mur- kyler murray yeah. um he right. went from around he was mocked to be about 26 then rose now all the way to i guess his average right now is 1.9 which is the top um but you know gentlemen like uh even drew Locke rose quite a bit uh daniel jones rose quite a bit and uh and even my guy will greer Shot up the charts. So, so yeah, I think your I think your intuition is spot on. Is so, this a crowd? I mean, is this how does this work? The, these mock drafts. It's, it's well, he, Josh said that. So again, we're talking about work by Benjamin Robinson, mm-hmm. um, who's got a who's got a website. And he's putting some things together, got some data, and and Josh characterized it as two thousand mock drafts since last year, dated. So people are updating their mocks and coded for level of expertise, essentially fan media expert. And one of the this isn't just you know. You, idle work because teams need this information when they're deciding when to take players, when to make trades, how aggressively to draft players. They, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the most difficult things that general managers have to do in the draft is decide, okay, this is a guy I want. I could take him now, but I'll be paying a little high for him given the value of the draft pick, or I can wait and I can hope to get him around later, but is he still going to be there? And so there's a real there's a risk taking thing there, and and the best drafters tolerate that risk, but you end up losing some players every now and then. So having some sense of when they're going to go is actually a really important input to their process. So fascinating, and I I had considered whether or not uh, you know internally any teams were, were using this kind of public data to to help uh, help with that kind of decision making efficiency here. So I, they build different teams, build different models, and God knows I haven't seen them all. But it, you know, you can just go to the mocks. That's one thing. But you can also have an analyst build these models. So some teams will have an analyst who'll build a model and say, I have a forecast on every player, and and it'll be dynamic in that, you know, ten picks in. That analyst will update the model and say, now, you know, this guy's going to go. And they'll turn to him during the draft and say, when, you know, what's the forecast? For when you, how much longer is this guy going to be on the board? And, of course, there's always a range around that. But an analyst, given the information these days and every year that goes by and more mocks are available and more data on the draft are available, that forecast turns out, I mean, it gets a little tighter all the time. And it's helpful. Listen, this raises an interesting question that came up in a in a just in, a, in an ESPN article, do you see this article about the Mahomes trade on ESPN? It ran the front page for a while, and they're saying this is the trade that you know shook up the draft, shook up the NFL. Uh, I think I saw it in passing, didn't I? So. Okay, so this is about the Mahomes trade. The Chiefs two years ago going up from number twenty-seven in the first round to number ten in the first round, and they got Mahomes. And Mahomes, of course, has you know been a very exciting player ever since he started playing this past season. And presumably going to be a stud for a long time. So they're just kind of reifying the Chiefs and anybody who was involved with this trade. And they're talking about how 
acute the analysis was that forecasted they got to go to this number 10 spot because if they you know waited any longer they were going to lose him but of course you want to wait as long as you can and so and it just strikes me as you know too kind much, of too 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 retrospective yeah, of an analysis yeah, yeah exactly to say well one we're writing this whole article because it worked out well yeah i mean how many trades have we seen up for quarterbacks that didn't work out well where are those articles and then we're telling these stories about how precise our judgment was when there's no way they could be that precise. I mean, we're sense of looking at these things, Josh. You've just been crunching through 2,000 of these things. I mean, how precise can you really be on where a where guy is going to be drafted? Yeah, and I guess uh, uh, just to put numbers on that, you know, you said that these mock drafts do pretty well. Uh, you know, for a particular player in a particular slot, like what's the plus minus? What's the standard deviation basically on, on or, you know, I guess the, the error that these dra- mock drafts typically commit? Uh, looking through Ben's work, I believe it was around eight or nine picks. Either way, yeah, so, exactly. yeah. That, that's yeah. that's in the top round. Just to you know, you're not picking the, yeah. the 150th within yeah, plus or minus it's eight. Like 30. Yeah, at least yeah. much okay, bigger. Okay, fantastic. Exactly, exactly. All right, listen, man, Josh, tell us what else you're thinking about. What are you working on? What's next? What's the next 5:30 article going to be? I, another question. Whichever one you want to go. How are you going to take in the NFL draft? How are you going to consume it over the next few days? Uh, I'm going to consume it, unfortunately, without a beer in hand because I have to write a quick response piece as soon as it's over. Oh, really? Uh, but, okay. uh, but 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 it will be in a bar environment, so uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be drinking a beer in spirit. But uh, in terms of what, so that then that answers your other question. What's next? Basically, I'm just going to go through and see how well these mock drafts did in, in terms of predicting the actual order of uh, of the NFL draft. And uh, um, it's really interesting. There's a website out there that actually tracks. Uh, the expert mockers, and I interviewed one of them, the guy that was at the top of the leaderboard last uh, last year, and he basically said you should be able to get 26 of the 32 first round draftees. Oh my! Just falling out of bed, just falling out of bed. Really? You know, that's, huh. that, that's easy to do. Hold on, you mean and 26 got, out of 32, regardless of where they go? You don't mean pick the actual correct. destination? Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Correct. And he was able to get 10 to the team. Okay. And that was marvel. That was marvelous. So thirty thirty okay. percent, roughly. Wow. Um, and, and that's about as good as a human can do, apparently. Yeah, that's a good that's a good summary of it. Yeah, I'm just looking at Ben Robinson's graph. About six of them that are that uh, are predicted to be in the top thirty two fail to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, by the way, just while we're on this topic, as a reminder to all of us, we're kind of we're kind of be- casting a skeptical eye on the on the on the genius of the folks who made the Mahomes trade. Um, some other first-round trades for quarterbacks. Redskins go up for Robert Griffin III. Browns go up for Johnny Manziel. Vikings go up for Teddy Bridgewater. Broncos go up for Paxton Lynch. Jags go up for Blaine Gabbert. Broncos go up for Tim Tebow. Hmm. Yeah. Where are those articles? Where are those articles, Josh? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I heard you on Ed Fang's podcast, Kate, and you said you're coming around about trading up. I am. Or at, I, least, or at least you're open. I am, but exactly. But you got to know that it's not. It's, it's often not going to work out. It's, you don't go up you because have to it's going to work out. Appraisal of the, at least the success yeah. rate when you do that. You go up because it's going to be great if it does work out, not because yeah. it's going to work out. I mean, this is and you got to you got to have. We, this is that we never learn if we only pay attention to the ones that work out. We got to. We need the articles. That's. We need that, or or at least we need to embrace the uncertainty and risk taking that these teams are good, doing, good. and not kind of retrospectively, kind of I guess, rid ourselves of of that risk. Okay, to be fair, exactly, hundred percent. But to be fair, because Maddie was giving us Maddie was giving us failures, where we got to embrace both sides, yeah. right? Eagles went up for Carson Wentz, Texans go up for Deshaun Watson. All right, so we, we, we yeah. there's some there's some wins, there's some successes. Um, 
Josh, tell us one thing. Once the football draft clears out and you come back around to some of your longer-term projects, give us some sense of what's, what you're interested in digging into. Oh, boy. Uh, the thing I'm most interested in digging into, I really can't get into too much, but I really want to, I want to get at uh, what's going on inside the head of the quarterback. I think that's the high-order bit, and it always has been. It's the hardest thing for scouts to kind of give an opinion about and certainly putting numbers to a quantifying Incredibly different, uh, incredibly difficult. But I do think we have some some data coming online that'll allow us to to get a better uh, get a better sense of the decision making process that a quarterback goes through on the field of play, how well he operates within the system, and kind of marrying that with some other production metrics. I think it uh, it could be helpful at least. That's great. And we, I'm, I'm optimistic. It sounds. I mean, it's terrifically important, right? There's no more important evaluation in sports than these these college quarterbacks we won't push you for detail because we know that it's early and um, these things are, are precious so listen josh we'll let you go thanks again for getting up this early and visiting with us and thanks for all the work you do we always enjoy the hell out of talking to you oh man i love it thanks so much kid you bet josh hermsmeyer writer for 538 founder of airyards.com and great twitter follow at frisco josh at frisco josh guys um terrific last couple of guests talking about football analytics and especially the draft michael lombardi Longtime NFL exec, and then Josh Hermsmeyer, one of the best follows you can have out there in the world of sports analytics, football analytics in particular. Um, we talked in the first half hour about the basketball playoffs and the hockey playoffs. Some interesting. This is you know now we're about to clear round one, yeah. so we're getting finally more we're maybe getting some excitement. There are a lot of big people talking about Houston versus Golden State as like yeah. the championship. Really, it's, I mean. Are we that down be, on the East? I mean, really, the best of these teams can't can't do anything. Yeah, I don't think. I, yeah, uh, I'm like, not that down. No, I don't. I'm not pretty good. Yeah, you'd think so. Come on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it is definitely the most compelling matchup, matchup probably of the second round, right? But oh still, yeah, but Warriors but still, Browns, yeah. but allegedly, I mean, possibly at least the best two teams going against each other. Yeah, that's well. That is a good question. We have power rankings. We have power rankings on the NBA somewhere. Straight up power rankings. We must so. If we get those numbers, the Warriors must be number one. You know, 538 does that, and they do a playoff adjustment. They have this interesting Kluge in their model. Well, you have to. They don't play seriously exactly. during the regular yeah. year. I mean, Kluges are, by definition, necessary. No. Right? So that's something you have to do to get the model to act right because the NBA performs so differently during the regular season than during the playoffs. But, yeah, we should look at 538's power rankings just to get some sense whether that's true. How true is that? that right. They're the best two teams yeah. playing in the second round. That would be a little surprising. In the second round. I mean, we've had it for a while in the finals out there in the West. Mm -hmm. The last couple of years, that's That's been the way people have talked about it. Um, Y'all aren't paying attention, I don't think. But come on, the Champions League. It's time to pay a little attention to the Champions League, right? Because we're having a cup of coffee right now while you're you're done. I don't have a lot. I don't have anything to say, (laughs) frankly, other than I I pronounce it Ajax, which I'm sure is wrong. But the Ajax. Ajax is the Netherlands, the Dutch team. Yeah. And we don't. They don't have much profile over here. I'm sorry to say, but they do have a history. They've won. They've won multiple Champions Leagues, and not even that far in the past. But they just knocked out Juventus, I believe, last week, um, and they're going up against Tottenham now. So they'd probably be. I mean, I don't know how they're. Tottenham knocked out Man City in this glorious thing. So these are kind of like the basketball. I mean, the soccer playoffs. Is that what this is like? Well, it's it's it's, it's the playoffs of the champions all the from all leagues, the different right. leagues. Right. Yeah. So. so it's it's neat. This is yeah. weird, weird cool. slash neat thing that happens because they're still all playing their normal season right now. So they'll play weekend games in the Premier League, for example. Tottenham and in fact, Tottenham Man City played midweek last week. 
Tottenham knocks Man City out of the Champions League, and then they turn around and play a regular Premier League game <laughs> on Saturday, and Man City gets the win. So it's this weird thing. It's the same play. I mean, it's almost not, almost not exact same players. They, they move the roster around a little bit. But you're bouncing back and forth between Champions League, which people care about, and then the the normal leagues, which also – I mean, you talk about yeah. Liverpool. Liverpool's in the final as well, so the, the semis, that is. The other side is Liverpool-Barcelona. And you talk to Liverpool fans like, yeah, you know, I'd like to do that, but I care more about the Premier League. They have, it's been so long since they've won a title that they would rather hold on and get the Premier League. But what's the story on the Premier League these days, Matty D? They, they, uh, Liverpool's leading, but, they, but, but Man City has a game in hand. So if Man City wins out, if Man City wins out, they're going to um, take it. And Man, the thing that's interesting about this is Man City was the biggest favorite for a regular season title of any sport I've seen in forever coming into the season. They're, they're so loaded. They're so stacked. They just, the, the, the owners so flout the fair play rules that they were some absurd right. favorite to win, and yet they're just barely going to eke it out if they do actually Well, win. I mean, that's, you know, I guess that's a credit to the sport that it's still, like, got that inherent randomness, even though it's, you know, well, kind of in this very salary, like, no salary cap yeah, kind yeah, of something. Yeah, but, I don't know but you why. have to say, I, Liverpool must be also a very, very good team before are, the they season. Are. So and, it's they, not like, and they were, they were yeah. but, but, but Adi, I'm telling you, go look at the preseason yeah. numbers. It's not close. It. I mean, it's like total clumpy, yeah. one big Man City number and then everybody else. Now, today's a big day. Man City and Man United, there aren't many chances left for Man City to take a loss or a draw, and Liverpool needs them to. So this is a good one. Man, Man United turned their season around mid-season Getting rid of the coach. They started out horribly and have been stronger since they changed leadership over there. All right. Um, other news around the world. How about uh, how about this Jeopardy thing? That's I love going it. On? Yeah. I, I haven't seen it, but I've I love read it about because it. it's very interesting mathematically. The, the whole betting strategy is uh, something that people have to sort of think about. I mean, clearly he knows all the answers, but he's done something which no one has ever done in Jeopardy, which is start at the bottom. What does that mean? That means you start at the at the highest dollar values, and the purpose of this is to accumulate a bankroll so that you can bet either all of yeah. it or a large fraction like of it. He's very for aggressive much more money. on things like the daily doubles, where you have some control, where where you have control over the amount that you bet. Okay, right. Are, so these, are these bottom more rewarding questions harder? Are they, are they you know, that's that something I don't know. Maybe someone will look at Theoretically, up, they're supposed to be. I'm not they're, sure. They are. But that's he's getting what, almost yeah. every question right anyway. So it doesn't matter. So it really doesn't matter. But he does have an interesting kind of conundrum, I think, at this point, at the end, because at the final Jeopardy question, many times, almost all the, always, I think, all but once, he's, he's sufficiently in the lead that he doesn't have to bet. Okay. So yet he's betting the, the maximum amount. And the purpose of that, of <laughs> course, is because he's thinking about it in terms of expected value, I guess. If you know 97, 98% of all questions, who would want to, uh, who would not turn down a double your bankroll bet yeah. at a 97% probability? Right. That's, that's about as good as expectation you can get. On the other hand, he's, if he loses in, in the situation where, where he bets all and someone else catches him, he gives up all future earnings. Yeah. And that's got to be you got to work that in, in somehow. I mean, he can play ninety, hundred times. I mean, before he, he yeah. Well, they eventually. So, by the way, his hit rate is ninety percent. I mean, it's four seven ninety seven four seventeen out of four thirty four. He's answered four hundred and forty three questions so far in this run. Well, they the guys they do make long runs. These best players do yeah. make long runs. But do they ever just kick them off? Are they like, no, we're stuck with this guy. We made it. We made an agreement that he can play as long as he well, wants. Well, I mean, this, this kind of unprecedented long run probably gives some viewers as opposed to subtracts viewers. They have no uh, incentive to kick him off, I think. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. So, 
the one of the interesting themes. Now I about feel like this, I'm on the clock. Exactly. We can do that for over unders later in the day. What? Who is? What is the name of the actual longest Jeopardy champion? Do you know? Come Jennings. On. Jennings. There Jennings. you go. That's uh, five points for. <laughs> okay, seventy-four days is the seventy-four days. But seriously, the the record. The, the interesting bit here is that this that the betting. The bet size matters, and he's a sports better historically, right? Which That's is right. One of the he's Kelly betting, which it. is the which is uh, the, a standard trick in, in any gambler to bet a proportion of your bankroll, so, not not fixed dollar bets, mm-hmm. but proportions of your bankroll. Mm-hmm. And when you're that probabilistic, and when you're that had a good, you have that good a chance of winning. It's that bankroll is about ninety seven. It can't be that high. That's the thing that I think is is a little over aggressive because if you can play seventy five or hundred times. He's giving away all the future if he makes a mistake. I see. Particularly yeah, yeah, yeah. where where his uh, you know continuing is on the line. No, okay. again, like the mistake he would make. Again, he's clearly very good and knows the, these answers. It would have to be a particularly hard or tricky question where he, for him to kind of lose those future rings, he would have to make a mistake that his competitors. Somebody else did, of course. You got it. So I just want to. I just want to point out again. We, we, we're not going to take. We could. We should probably do a whole show on this at some time. Bet sizing because it matters in investing yeah. as well. And it's kind of for a lot, especially among academics, it's been kind of neglected. Partly because they just assume investors and organizations, especially, are risk neutral. At that point, it doesn't matter as much. But for for sports betting, especially, bet sizing is terrifically important. So you can't. It's not just about picking the winners or getting the probabilities right. You've got to know how much to put there. And if you talk to sports betters, it's like a huge, bankroll management is a is a is a is a huge part of the game. Um, anything on baseball before we roll into over unders? We talked a little bit, Adi. Um, we talked about the Yankees and their DL problems. Did you t- discuss why? Any thoughts to how that could be? I mean, they've got fourteen guys on the DL and. What is the cause of this kind of collapse? I mean, you watch guys like Aaron Judge. He swing he swings the bat and he goes on the DL. What the? So you think he didn't get made... hurt in the he didn't slide or you know he just swung the bat and pulls his oblique out for two months. So the the the, the parsimonious answer is bad luck. That's generally yeah. the way it goes. But, but uh, do you, you have uh, well potentially you have I mean, a theory besides just bad enormous luck? amount of time in the weight room. I mean, this is the thing that we used to completely inaccurately it's used to think in sports, the particularly a sport like baseball for pitchers. And and I, I used to swim. You would say never lift because that produced mm-hmm. all this these tight mu- big muscles that were useless yeah. complete garbage by the way you I want mean, to be does, lifting like crazy the, but at some point the, the, healthiest, the, the healthiest most effective pitcher they have is CC Sabathia no, so that supports your <laughs> argument I guess it does but I mean this idea that you spend so much time in the weight room you become so so muscular and potentially they take supplements the, okay, the daily use had it but no, do we know that yeah, well, do we have any idea if the Yankees spend more time in the weight room than any other team no, no. Just look, I mean you don't look at you look at I mean what makes Stanton and Judge and, and guys like Sanchez. Are you just so eyeballing this, Mr. I'm totally eyeballing it. I'm throwing <laughs> oh, out man. hypotheses. Yeah. I mean, what's no. your hypothesis? It turns out Bad four, luck. I mean, we're at all-time DL list at 45, I think, so far in this. This is enormous. Across the league. Across yeah. the league, yeah. No, it's, it's, and 14 on the Yankees. I mean, this is just a... So no, one but, could but, argue that they have a, a particular strategy, a, 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 you know, a trainer that... I don't know. This one is could just certainly argue, but... You would think that in this day and age, what sports science is doing, yeah. you would think we'd go the other direction. Exactly. But right. injuries seem to be up almost every year. Okay. So the um, the uh, other things going on around the league, anything interesting? So what's this Cubs shutout streak? 31 innings shutout streak. Longest run for Chicago since a 31 inning run in 76. This is a 40-year-old streak. We're talking about them sh- not scoring. 
they've the Cubs have been off to a struggle this this season. Yeah. Right? They start, I know they started they started weekly, but that's a long. Thirty-one is, is that okay? Are you impressed, Adi, with that? Not is, particularly. I mean, this is you talk about. They're not working they, out enough. They're, it's just an extreme. I mean, that's the problem. Get them to the gym, man. Yeah, you got it. So, so for example, there was this. Uh, so the Red Sox started particularly badly, right? As in one, and it's still doing badly. Yeah. Um, but there are many teams that have had nineteen-game stretches, twenty-game stretches, which are much worse over the course of the season, and and with great expectations of beginning the season, and done very well in the end. But what's happened here? With, with thing about the Red Sox, it's the beginning of the season. There's only one beginning. You can search over course of the entire season and find some, you know, extra event. And that's generally the problem about looking at these analyses is that extra extra events happen. There are stretches of 31 games. Uh, this innings is in a row. streak. Of this is so, by the way, I so, had it exactly wrong. It's not that they didn't score. They didn't let anybody else score. Yeah, 31 runs without, 31 innings without letting anybody else score. So the Cubs have have turned around their bad start, apparently. What's interesting is that, is given how much offense is being produced. I see. Okay, in this era. This but it is remarkable. I mean, offense here is coming in basically one type. Home runs, walks, you get some guys on base, you hit a couple home runs, that's it. So it's in some sense, I would guess it's highly variant. So you can get a lot of very low-scoring games. It's also ridiculously high-scoring games. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue to pay some attention to baseball. We're not going to ignore no them all kidding. together. No kidding. That's a long This time season. of year. Come on, man. This time yeah. of year. All right. Listen, let's take the uh, final turn and bring this thing home. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. All right. In the absence of our usual over-under bus driver, Eric Bradlow, I'll lead the question answering, asking here, but we'll, we'll circle around. Let's stay with baseball for a second. We we're just talking baseball. Christian Yelich, Milwaukee Brewers, a, uh, an analytics-happy organization. In fact, we've been sending students yes. there to work lately, which is awesome. He's on a, he's on a crazy home run run. 13 home runs so far, second most before May 1st ever. Uh, what's what are you gonna put the over under for his season at forty point five is the market? This is like Fangraphs baseball prospectus informed number, so that's a knowledgeable number. Forty point five season home runs for Christian Yelich, who's off to this ridiculous start. I, I think it's a good number, forty point five, but I'm gonna go over because I'm rooting for Yelich, young guy, hits the ball harder than anybody else. I mean, really, in terms of the percentage of what they call barrels, the guy is just you know. So barrel is both exit velocity and location on the bat, or just uh, no, basically on the bat? hitting it hard, just hitting it square and hard, no matter where you hit it, okay. or whether it's a grounder or whether it's a line drive or a home run. Okay, it's just hard. When you say he's young, how long has he been in the majors? Just a handful of years, five years or so, maybe. Okay. You know, he was one but, of the players that the Miami Marlins got rid of when they cleaned house. Uh, right. All right. How? How? What position does he play? He's an outfielder, and he's uh, and so he's this, last year he was an MVP, and the year before he had a pretty good solid year. He's just stars rising, but but at forty point five, I mean, conditional on having already thirteen, it's a pretty good number. Okay, Shane. Yeah, I'm going to take the over too. I think uh, I I mean I think he'll obviously come back down to earth from his current like whatever he's oh, he's sure. on pace to hit like a hundred home runs in a season or something like that. He's not going to do that, but he. Take the under I, on that. I, one. I, I, I think he'll. Uh, I think he'll get to forty-one. How many people hit more than forty home runs in the last couple of years? A bunch. Yeah, there's two or three per season. Oh, at least yeah. at this point. Okay. Yeah, home runs are a thing. I'm gonna go under just to be contrarian, right. and things happen. You know, we just yeah. had a big injury conversation. Yeah, no, did. it's true. It's true. Factor. You got to factor in an injury. Yeah, but he doesn't look like Aaron Judge or Mike Stanton. Well, he doesn't do much weightlifting, <laughs> no, he so he doesn't. should be okay. Yeah, he should be great. Yeah. I don't even I don't know. know. He's Who just knows? Making shit really? up. Okay, we were we were talking we were talking Jeopardy earlier. James Holzhauer making this run. Uh, the the record is Ken Jennings seventy four games, 
um, earned two point five million dollars. So is James Holzhauer going to? He he's got one point one in fourteen games, and he's hitting ninety seven percent correct responses. Is he going to top Ken Jennings' Ken Jennings' record two point five million earnings? Ooh. All right, I am going to. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to take the under. Yeah, Adi convinced me that he's uh, being a little bit too risk tolerant with too his reckless. with his betting. I think he's going to make a mistake on one of these uh, final jeopardies and and lose. So I'll go ahead and go over. He's you know forty percent of the way there in a fraction, a small fraction of the games, and so. Even though he might blow it eventually, mm-hmm. due to too much yeah. risk taking, he he is a shorter runway to get there. It's a good it's a good number because it's kind of right in the middle because it looks like he's made a huge progress in only fourteen, but it's not a linear extrapolation because each basically I'm giving him about a three percent chance to sort of blow it in a game. Yeah. So if you want to say how many games, if he's going to need another fourteen or fifteen, another right. make it. Good. So 0.03 to the fourteenth, you know, point nine seven to the fourteenth power good. is at least fifty percent. Might be, might be low, but I think huh? he's listening to me right now, and he's saying Weiner's got something good, yeah. and I need to back yeah. off. So I'm going over. Huge fan of Wharton Moneyball, that guy. Oh, I see. So you're going with the non yeah. non stationary system. You think he's going to? I learn. think he's going to learn a little bit to back off. Okay, because other people might. Or as if he's actually advice. listening. Let it ride, man. Let, Let it ride. ride. <laughs> all right, let's go to the NBA. We have the East all cleared up for the second round. We've got Bucks, Bucks, Celtics. And Raptors Sixers coming up. How many series wins do we have between the Sixers and the Celtics? Point five is the over under. We talking about this series or for series for the rest of the season? The rest of the season, just to, okay. Second round, second round series wins. Second round series wins by Sixers and Celtics. The over under is point five. Will either of these teams win their series against the Raptors and Bucks? I You're have to up. go first. Adi's pointing. At me. Yeah, yeah. You don't want that Good disadvantage. Reminder. Good reminder. Um, yeah, I'll take one of them to win. Sure, I'll go over. I mean, there's two. Who chan- are they playing? Two Remind chances. me. Remind yeah. me. Who are they playing in the second round? The the Celtics Sixers are playing the Bucks. Celtics are playing the Bucks. Uh, Sixers are playing Sixers yeah, Raptors. Raptors. I mean, yeah, I would put a very different probability on those two events, right? Celtics, they were so sketchy coming into the playoffs. Maybe they'll turn it around, but that's a tough. That's a tough series. Oh. Whereas the Sixers, it feel like they can turn it on and, t- and yeah. take almost anybody in a little match. So I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over two. I like I like the Sixers. It's a dumbass bet, right? No, I mean I think at point f- at, at, at point five. I mean I think you know I mean each one of them, even if they're underdogs in both series, you know point two five like point four plus point four is greater than point five. You, you know what I'm saying? There you go. So, there you go. And it may be. It may I'll be take like, the over. It may be a point four versus a point two five. I don't think it is point four. I think the Bucks are over the Celtics yeah. probably point seven. Something like that. But then Sixers will be closer to the Raptors. Okay. All right, NFL draft begins tomorrow. Twenty nineteen draft. First round tomorrow. How many trades will we see in that first round? We had seven in the last two years. We had five three years ago. I think we had like ten two years ago. All, All right. right. Seven That's and five trend. historically. The over under here is six point five. First round trades tomorrow. Is it my turn? I'm up. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, it's funny that I'm not letting you go first because this is your goddamn no, expertise. No, no, no. So I'm going to just assume that that people are listening to Cade Massey and they're they're not they're starting to not make those dumbass trades for you know overvaluing those those top top positions in there. And if I'm going to go under. If only the world was. Well, to me. I mean, there's only I mean. Uh, the Kate Massey principle is that you don't trade up. Yeah. Trading down still okay, right? But you got someone's got to take your partner. The, the point is, you don't trade at market prices. Yeah. You would trade down at market prices, but you want to trade up. So you, the, the real prediction would be that the market would adjust and you'd have lower prices. And we haven't seen much of that. Yeah, I'm going to take the over. 
don't so you're under. Yeah. Shane is over. And um, I'm going to go over too. People are people are. I'm going happy. against the expert. Right. I'm crying. <laughs> but you know what happens? When, the expertise. Number. You know, we know about that. You know, your domain. You can lose. You can lose. You, you, you overthink. Can. All right. When is Dwayne? <laughs> when is Dwayne Haskins? Last two quickly. Dwayne Haskins. When the number two? Most people have him the number two quarterback in the draft. Ohio State. When is he going to be picked? Ten point five. Is where the guys set the number ten point five. Will he make the top ten? Is what it comes down to. Is Haskins going to be picked in the top ten? Yes. Yes, I agree. I say yes. Quarterbacks. People I, love yeah, quarterbacks. They, people love quarterbacks. People love. They're into them. <laughs> we, They're an important position. Oh, he wants to go contrarian, but he can't. I do because you know I'm going to get pummeled if it's a bad. You know, I'm just going to have to follow you guys and go over. It's a dumb thing to say, but you mean you mean you mean against us? You're going to no. Go, I'm going to go with you. Okay, you with you're saying in he's going to go. Ten. Wait, wait, wait. Makes it, in the top ten. We in say the, yeah. you're saying he's going to go in the top ten. Oh wow. Okay, I'll follow you guys. I'm just a piece of <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll drag it. Okay, last one. Number of rookies of the year in the top eight and a half picks of the draft. In other words, will the rookie of the year come in the first eight and a half picks? There's offense and defense, so one of, either one of the two guys. Three in the last six years, Gurley, Saquon, and Bosa. Quickly, I think it's me. I'm going to go no. That's not going to happen. We're not going to get a rookie I'll say. I'll take top. no as well. Okay. Adi, you, you need to be yes. <laughs> Just yeah, do, I'll it, do it. it. I'll just. I'll do yes. This. Yeah, like, you guys yeah. don't like. Yeah. I, gotta regret, I, like it. I yeah. regret my pick. You got a good pick on that one. I'm going right? yes. In the end, we gave you a good pick on that one. All right, guys. <laughs> that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it live here every Wednesday morning, eight a.m. to ten a.m. From Adi Weiner, from Shane Jensen, from Eric Bradlow, and in absentia. Thank you to Daniel Bruno. Thank you to Maddie Dats. Thank you to our guests, Michael Lombardi, Josh Hermsmeyer. This has been a, a lot of fun. We hope you guys will come back. And join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.